This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. More than 50 years ago, leading up to and following the very first Earth Day in 1970, all across the U.S., scientists, activists, and the public marched through the streets fighting for clean air and water regulations. And now we are living through another crisis, one that's only getting worse with time, climate change. Science confidently tells us that we have to make big changes fast to curb emissions. And we heard earlier, just yesterday, that the Supreme Court issued a major ruling that curbed the EPA's power to regulate carbon emissions. I've been thinking lately about how impassioned environmental scientists were back in the day, seeking change. Scientists like Paul Ehrlich and Carl Sagan appearing on major talk shows, warning of environmental destruction. And one, Barry Commoner, ran for president on a third party. So I got to wondering, where is the rebellion this time? And I found it alive and, well, how well is it? That's what I want to find out with my next guests, whose actions make them bona fide climate activists. Let me introduce them. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, who chained himself to a bank. Rose Abramoff is a global change ecologist based in Knoxville, Tennessee, who chained herself to the White House fence. And let me say that both of my guests are speaking on their own behalf and not their institutions. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. You know, I said uh, you are bona fide activists because you both have the street cred for that title. Peter, let me begin with you. Your protest in L.A. where you change yourself to a bank. Walk me through that, will you? Yeah. So it grew out of a sense of getting more desperate every year about inaction over uh, climate breakdown. And yeah, I've got two two kids, two young sons, and I've been a climate activist really for 16 years. And then the IPCC report, uh, the Working Group 3 report came out on April 4th, and it said extremely clearly that we have to have a moratorium starting right now a new fossil fuel infrastructure. And that's the thing that really gets me is that we're in a climate emergency and yet world leaders still keep wanting to build out fossil fuel infrastructure uh, totally against the scientific consensus. And so out of desperation, I joined a group called Scientists Rebellion, which planned a global day of action on April 6th. And what we decided to do here in uh, Los Angeles was to highlight what you could call the money pipeline. So so these big investment banks, uh, JP Morgan Chase is, is the biggest of them all in terms of funding new fossil fuel projects, which is what has to stop. So we wanted to uh, to to basically bring attention to that part of the crisis. So that's what we did. Well, after you changed yourself to the J.P. Morgan Bank, what happened? We had these uh, these kind of kryptonite bike chains. There were two sets of double doors, and there were four of us willing to risk, as as we say. And so we locked the doors closed first to prevent, you know, sort of altercations with people coming in and, and you know, trying to get out and being frustrated. There were other doors to the building. And then we simply uh, chained our wrists to the door handles and we waited. And a couple hours later, um, they decided to close the bank for the day and we we cheered. And then shortly after that, the police arrived in force. Um, there were probably at least 80, maybe 100 uh, police in full riot gear. And they asked us to leave and we politely declined. And then they arrested us, put us in handcuffs and um, locked us in the slammer for about six hours and then let us out uh, shortly after midnight. And um, and that's where we're at now. We have a court date for misdemeanor trespassing. Mm-hmm. And Rose, uh, you change yourself to the White House fence. Please tell us about that. 
Sure. So my approach to activism is also born out of decades of inaction and trying to follow the rules and engage in primarily in educational um, and political advocacy sort of within the boundaries of what people are used to. Um, after so much inaction, as Peter described, um, I decided to try and think in, within the longer lens of history and take up tactics that have been historically effective at creating um, sweeping changes with fewer people um, who believe strongly. And so on that day, April 6th, I was working with a couple of other groups. I was working with a group called Declare Emergency, which demands that President Joe Biden declare a climate emergency and generally use his executive powers to mitigate climate change. And I was working with two other groups, Indigenous Water Protectors, Honor the Earth and Camp McGeezy. And so together with four other women, of which two were Indigenous, we chained ourselves to the White House fence using a couple of different tools. Um, we also had a bike lock, Peter. Um, the bike lock is a popular uh, symbol of, of um, moving away from automotive emissions. Uh, we locked on without incident. The police were on the scene very quickly. Um, they were already there were already a few stationed in various parts of the park in front of the White House fence. They cleared the park extremely quickly, um, moving everyone who was supporting us away from us. And maybe half an hour to an hour, um, were able to assemble the tools they needed to cut us off. So they needed bolt cutters. They needed a circular saw for the bike lock. Were you, were you arrested? We were, yes. We were risking arrest and we were arrested. The amount of warming that we're facing threatens our lives and threatens the lives of hundreds of millions, eventually billions of people. And so I really have the distinct sense that we're fighting for our lives and that we need to start thinking about what we're willing to do in order to defend ourselves. I want to know... Do you think you really accomplished anything concrete by doing this? As I say, I've watched protests for the last 50 years. Some are successful, some are not. Certainly the civil rights movement uh, believed in civil disobedience. They were up a notch. Do you, do you think that you can get the attention, Peter, that you desire for real change here? I, I felt a huge shift after April 6th and the Scientist Rebellion. I see, first of all, I've connected with dozens, hundreds maybe, of young activists around the world who are similarly engaging in civil disobedience. And I think they're frustrated that more scientists and more you know, people in power and more people with authority aren't stepping up to the plate and speaking out uh, like that this is an actual emergency and speaking through their actions, right? Communicating through their actions instead of just in peer review papers. So it's been very heartening to them. But I think even more importantly, I've sensed a shift in how the mainstream media has been discussing uh, climate breakdown. What is the shift that you're seeing? The shift is that the, the mainstream media is starting to do things like say that basically communicate the narrative that we are potentially at risk of losing everything here and that the fossil fuel industry has been basically lying for decades and causing this to happen. Like we didn't have to get to this point. Also, Ira, there was one concrete result. I'm not sure if you can credit it to us, but following the April rebellion sometime afterwards, Joe Biden did somewhat fulfill one of the stated demands of declare emergency, which was to authorize, utilize the Defense Production Act um, in order to facilitate a transition to renewables, 
So I think that there is some evidence that the increased awareness, at the very least, of the climate crisis um, can push legislators and the executive office to make change. Let's talk about yesterday's Supreme Court ruling that cut the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, actually undoing climate activism. Is it frustrating to live in a country that has the power to limit greenhouse gases and, and actually go in the opposite direction? Absolutely. I mean, we know that the United States accounts for the great majority of historical per capita excess emissions. And so it really, we have a special place in history and not a good special place in history as being one of the greatest creators of the climate crisis. And so I think it behooves us to take a leadership role in limiting our emissions. The Biden administration has made some promises, you know, in, in the opinion of the sci- many in the scientific community, it's not enough to limit catastrophic breakdown. But we're not even on track to meet those emissions targets. Um, and this EPA ruling hamstrings us further. Mm-hmm. And well, you're both climate scientists. Do you need more support from other scientists to join you or the, you know, the scientist rebellion? The more people engaging in whatever way they can uh, in the in climate action, including and up to risking arrest through civil disobedience, the better. I I think this is it. Like this, it's it's do or die time. We need to get the movement as strong as it can get as quickly as possible. In my opinion, there's basically capture going on by the fossil fuel industry, capture of our political system through donations, which are essentially bribes to politicians capture of the media by basically owning the corporations and, you know, reporters feel like they can't say what they might otherwise say. Even capture of the United Nations sort of annual conferences, the conferences of the parties, you know, they try to hammer out international agreements to stop climate change. If the fossil fuel industry has infiltrated sort of the power structures of our collective decision making to that degree, there's no other conclusion to draw, but that the grassroots movement has to get stronger than that. The People in charge, the people in power have to be more afraid of the grassroots mover movement, basically the voters, than of the fossil fuel industry. So let's talk about the voters. Do you think the voters are behind you uh, or do you think that it's really just still very hard to get people to care about the climate? Yeah. So I one of the things that I that I think about a lot is how the media has been, like I said, captured essentially by whatever it is, by pe- by really rich people, by the fossil fuel industry. Um, Rupert Murdoch with Fox News, for example. Um, and even, even the not ultra conservative media, right, hasn't really been telling the story. For years and years, they would want to tell both sides, right? And they would have like debates. They would have a climate denier who came in with anti-science, with incorrect facts. You know, the, fa- the false equivalents. Right. With with cherry picked data. And they would expect, you know, climate experts to push back against that. And the public got, you know, very confused. And the fossil fuel industry, as is very well documented now, has spent decades literally putting out disinformation and trying to confuse the public and trying to minim- minimize public concern. But don't you then come across as alarmist or the, the crazies, the fringe element being portrayed that way? Well, I think one major issue here is that there's no direct line from scientists to the people. We're filtered through media. We're filtered through this false equivalency. 
Um, and so you don't get a sense of the conversations that we're having within the scientific community with ourselves, um, because science communication is often filtered through this, um, extremely, um, careful language, very risk averse language in order to maintain this, this sense that we're calm and unbiased and collected. But when we're standing at the water cooler, we are freaking out, (laughs) um, and, and that doesn't get communicated to the general public. You know, I've been trying to raise the public sense of urgency for such a long time, and it hasn't been working that well. And so I'm like, well, let's try climate disobedience. We'll see if that works. And I, I, to me, the results of that experiment were really astounding. You're listening to Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And what kinds of tactics are you planning for the future? Can can you talk about them? In a broad sense, yes. Um, I participated in an action just last weekend um, supporting the Debt for Climate campaign, which is essentially an international global South-led movement to try and cancel global South debt so that they can use that money to transition to renewables. And so Scientist Rebellion and the movement in general are trying to support each other and coalesce as much as possible around these broad yet achievable specific demands that can help with climate mitigation, help with transitions, and help with equity, like the equity issues related to mitigating climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll see a perseverance and potentially an escalation of tactics as the climate crisis escalates. Interesting. Rose, do do you encourage other scientists to join Scientist Rebellion? Absolutely. I think, you know, we as scientists think of ourselves as the you know, last great community that cannot be bought, you know, or so we think we we believe that in the truth um, and in speaking the truth. And so I think it's more important than ever now that we not be afraid of what we might lose and really c- try to communicate the truth as forcefully as possible um, and, and not rely on the sort of cultural tendency to water down the severity and the urgency in order to appear calm. We need to abandon that because you mentioned that climate activists are accused as alarmists, but I think that there is cause for alarm. And so in that sense, we may we may be able to reclaim that term. You know, earth scientists and climate scientists and biologists and ecologists, we have front row seats to the destruction of Earth's life support system and the destruction of these ecosystems and these animals and plants and fungi are on this planet. To, in my mind, it's really a cosmic thing. You know, I, I started out as an astrophysicist and I switched into climate science to, in, in, in 2012. Um, I think a lot of Earth scientists are just observing this and observing these changes. And they're studying these systems because they love these systems and they're, they're failing and dying in front of their eyes. And we're feeling terror, we're feeling desperation. And again, just empirically writing our papers and showing the plots that are, you know, the trends are getting stronger and stronger and the, the signals are getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, it's not, hasn't been working. It hasn't, the way it should work uh, is those data should convince policymakers of the extreme risk that we're heading into and the, the growing cost in terms of human lives, in terms of our collective future uh, as a human species on this pale blue dot. Um, they should start taking action according to science, but they are not. 
And we could argue about why they're not. You know, I've already expressed my opinion as to why. But we can't keep doing what we've been doing that hasn't been working. We have to try something new. And right now, I think civil disobedience is a very fruitful uh, thing to try doing. Rose, you agree? Yes. I mean, scientists can usually make, research scientists can make a lot more money. I could make a lot more money working for the fossil fuel industry using my exact skill set. But I choose not to. I study the earth because I love it. And I can't bear to see what's happening to it. Ira, can I end with a quote from Carl Sagan from his book, uh, The Demon Haunted World? Sure. All right. So he was warning against the sort of anti-science that we witnessed yesterday with the Supreme Court decision. He said, the candle flame gutters, its little pool of light trembles, darkness gathers, the demons begin to stir. We have to, as a society, listen to scientists. We have been sounding the alarm so clearly for such a long time, and we've been being ignored. And that has to stop because the costs are mounting rapidly. I want to thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Peter Kalmus, climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Rose Abramoff is a global change ecologist based in Knoxville, Tennessee. Thanks again. Thank you for having us on, Ira. Thank you so much.